Good morning, good morning. My name is Andrea Simintov, and you're listening to Pull Up a Chair on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. I'm trying to be ultra-professional here this morning because like a child who is excited, I can barely control my glee because, please God, soon after this show, um, I'm going to leave Jerusalem for a few days. And unlike some recent trips I took, which were very family-oriented, a little bit crisis-centered, but truly critical and important, I'm going on vacation. And where is the best place to go on vacation for anybody listening overseas? Eretz Israel, of course. There are so many beautiful corners of Israel that have yet to be explored. And God willing, I'm going to be doing four or five days of sitting, communing, meeting, talking, and hopefully more than that, listening. That's a craft of mine that needs a little bit of developing. Let me first say good morning, good evening. It's late at night in the United States to our friends listening in from their book at Toberet Israel. Looks like nice. Please, God, let it be a good job already. South Africa is with us, which means they have electricity. You're listening in. Good morning, delicious South Africa. And Europe came up. Europe. We have all of Europe is listening this morning. I guess it'll subdivide. You know, we have a very sophisticated system, but sometimes it just kind of says miscellaneous. And then, of course, we have Canada, beautiful Canada. So, um, yeah, so we want to share that. Just, I mean, I'm very aware of there are these Canadian wildfires that um, everyone keeps talking because I get I get a lot of the American papers. So, of course a lot of the news that's coming down is about the the smoke, the terrible air that's coming down from the wildfires in Canada. And they're talking about how New York City, the air quality is, um, they say it's as terrible as it was the day of and the days following the nightmare of 9-11. But I don't hear anyone talking about what's actually happening to the forests in Canada. So if you'd like to drop me a note, let me know some of the things that you want to share. If you're listening in from Canada, drop me a note, Andrea at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. I'd like to know your thoughts on what is happening. So summer is really arriving. We're almost to the middle of June. Schools are closing. Um, Colleges are having their, if they haven't had their commencements already, they're taking place this week. Some of them have very admirable speakers. Some of them like City University of New York. Zebrech, Zebrech. Any of you who've been following this station know what's going on. Not today's subject. Write to me if you want me to send you my thoughts. Nevertheless, as summer is coming on, you know, we just finished the holiday of Shavuos. Um, this week we're reading, in Israel, we're reading Parsha Shalach, the Torah portion, and I had a little bit of a discussion with both friends and um, my holy husband, Ronnie, and I said, I don't know what to do because we're reading a different Torah portion here in Israel and in the Galut, in the diaspora, which I have so many wonderful listeners coming from the diaspora, but I don't really know the numbers. Which Torah portion should I focus myself in on? 
And he looked at me and he said, but everybody's supposed to live in Israel. All Jews are supposed to live in Israel. And that settled that. So we're doing Parsha Shalach because if you're not in Israel, it just means you're not in Israel yet. So I'll just keep you up to date so that when you land, when you come, when you arrive, you'll be with us. You won't be a, a Torah portion behind. So I had the great uh, merit of learning a lot of Torah this week. Somehow, uh, those of you who listen to the show know that I listen to a lot of true crime. And if you listen to enough true crime, I realize you become immune. The things that are supposed to horrify us, the things that are supposed to nauseate us. You know, you do something long enough, anybody interested in coaching, anybody reading self-improvement, anybody trying to better their lives know that in order to build a habit... Um, I forget what it is. They say in the detox communities or the Alcoholics Anonymous communities, they say something like you have to give 90 days or 180 days, something like that, to break a habit. And I realize that I listen to true crime um, much more than 180 days. And I decided this week I was going to break the habit. I didn't go cold turkey, but I went warm turkey. Uh, so I stopped listening, but I said, you know what? And I listened to a lot of music, but I thought I'm lacking. I need, I need to be elevated. I need to, I need to look at this world, this world that is so bitter, this world that actually infringes in our lives. There are people who say, well, I never listen to the news and I never watch, you know, I never watch television. I never listen to the news. I don't want any of that stuff. You know what? It seeps in. If you have a computer in your home, it seeps in. If you get a community newsletter, it seeps in. If you're a parent, a grandparent, a child of someone, a lot of that stuff seeps in. So what is the counterbalance? What is the antidote? Holiness, moral thought, growth, learning, and indeed interaction. I had a little bit of a ping, you know, one of those um, stinging behind the eyes moment. A client wrote to me, wanted an appointment. Uh, I don't really remember who she is, but she was on my phone. She came and she wanted an appointment for this coming week when I'm going to be away. And I wrote back to her, I'm sorry, I'm going to be away for a few days. Um, and she wrote back innocently, sweetly, good spiritedly. I don't even know her name. And she wrote back, gee, every time I try to make an appointment with you, you're on a vacation. You're on vacation. To which I wrote back, I think I said to her, you know, I'm going to be on vacation for five days. And I wrote back to her, just came out the tips of my fingers. I said, the times you tried to make an appointment, it wasn't really vacation. It was family crises and obligations. And then I pressed send. And I felt awash with the shame of it all. And she wrote back with apologies. I'm so sorry. I didn't know. Shame. It was a dose. I had a, 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 I had an attack of the what about me syndrome. What about me? So immediately I wrote back and I said to her, I'm, I'm extrapolating. I don't really remember, but I said something like, that was that was not nice what I did. That was foolish. I apologize. Um, you know, that just came out. I'm looking forward to speaking with you afterwards. 
and um, everything's good. I apologize. That was my bad. And it was really, you know, it's, we make mistakes, but we must be ready on tender hooks to say, I'm sorry, tell me more. Or even more importantly, maybe take that what about me syndrome and put it in a Tupperware. Take it out when you need it. But really, and every once in a while, just be a little more careful. Had the great source of listening to a lecture by the holy Repetzin Sipora, Heller Gottlieb, this week. And she was talking about something we talk about on this show a lot. What is the difference between us and animals? And of course, she opened up and asking the women in the room, what is the difference between me and a gorilla? And there was a lot of silence. And then finally, somebody said, well, you're less hairy. And she said, well, that's all you can come up with. I guess I have some work to do. But what she really was saying, what she absolutely was saying in time was that the smartest animal in the world, the cleverest dog, even a seeing eye dog or comfort animals, animals that help us and are so carefully, carefully trained, there's a maximum. Their lives exist and continue based on instinct. Things can be tweaked. Things can be melded. But if we only act on instinct, the instinct to snap back when we feel hurt, the instinct to snap back when we feel frightened, the instinct, and we really are no different than a gorilla or even an earthworm. And then she goes on, and this I'm giving you this assignment to think about by the short break. She then goes on to ask, does the world need man? Meaning, if the earthworm disappeared, would the trajectory of the world change? And anybody, science, scientists will tell you, yes, if the earthworm disappears, the world will change. The tsetse fly, the tiger, our ocean life, if any of it disappears, and this is why ecology is so critical, but man, it's all here for us. The difference we make in the natural world is very, very different unless we choose otherwise. So it's something to think about during the break. And as I said, I'm going away in my head and my heart to commune, to meet, to look at the sea, and to see just what is so beautiful, so wonderful. And you know what? To see the difference between the material and the holy. My name is Andrea Simintov. Guess what? I'll see you on the other side. Chair, IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. You know, to live in a world 
that we have a place, we have a site, we have a place that fosters thought, sometimes disagreement, sometimes curiosity, a station such as Israel News Talk Radio. Um, for this alone, we can say the world is indeed a better place. So years ago, uh, somebody sent this to me, and I had read it before. I'm not sure if I talked about it on the show, but hey, <laughs> I'm at an age where I do repeat myself, and I'm fascinated each time. So, oh, I just wanted to say Saudi Arabia is listening in with us this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Morning, cousins. Happy to see you there. All right. So apparently, the anthropologist Margaret Mead, brilliant world changer okay world changer for the holy so she was asked by one of her students what she considered to be the first sign of civilization in a culture uh, the student expected her to talk about fish hooks clay pots grinding stones i myself you know go right away to water uh not water <laughs> water you know fire fire is the biggie but you know no Margaret Mead said that the first sign of civilization in an ancient culture was the discovery of a broken femur, the thigh bone, um, that had been healed. That they found in a skeleton, a broken femur that had been healed. And she explained that in the animal kingdom, if you break your leg, you die. You cannot run from danger. Uh, you can't get to the river. You can't get a drink. You can't hunt for food. You are indeed meat. Your dinner time for prowling beasts. No animal survives a broken leg long enough for the bone to heal. And a broken femur that has healed is evidence that someone has taken this, the time to stay with the one who fell, that the wound was bound up, and the person was carried to safety. And the person was tended to through their recovery. Helping someone else through difficulty is where civilization starts, according to Margaret Mead. And um, the writer or the sender of this post finished with saying, we're at our best when we serve others. And it reminded me, one of these uh, Torah lectures I listened to this week, I believe it might also have been Rebetzin Heller Gottlieb, who talked about a tribe. I can't remember where the tribe is. And you know what? You listeners know. Uh, I'll try to find it out. Oh, Jamaica's with us. Very nice. Good morning, Jamaica. So a tribe called, believe it or not, Ugg. You know, like Ugg shoes. Um, they're not from Australia, but it's an Ugg tribe. And one of the um, attributes of this tribe is that they can say that in their tribe, there never was a murder. This is according to Yam Wright, Rebison Heller Gottlieb. There never was a murder in their tribe. One human being never raised a weapon, a fist, and killed another human being. So we could all listen and say, wow, wow, we have so much to learn from these holy people, but just wait. Another attribute of this tribe is if someone is injured during hunting, uh, they hunt for their food, they hunt for their livelihood, like so many indigenous 
peoples and tribes. If someone is injured, they are left behind, left by the side. There is no attention paid to them. They are they are no longer valuable. So, you know, there's a I just found that very interesting with this uh mead um mead idea okay so we like to talk about good stuff on the show we like to talk about fun stuff on the show but i would be remiss if i did not mention one of the most vulgar uh articles i read this week and if i didn't see the photographs if i didn't actually see videos of the story i wouldn't believe it and i think neither would you Apparently, a there's a play area, a play area, there's no R at the end of area, there's a play area next to an elementary school in Poland. Um, the, ta- the town is Kazimierz Dolny. Yeah. And there is a playground built on top of a former cemetery. Uh, the cemetery itself, it was demolished 50 years ago, but the build, the bodies were never removed. And so now they have a playground. And not only do they have a playground, but this week they had a festive, the school threw a festive children's bubble party on the site where the dead are still buried. Uh, the mayor of this town was contacted for comment. How could this happen? How could this go on? The chief rabbi wrote to him. Um uh, and there was no response because clearly uh, any respect for human burial was not um, was not a player in their decision. Nobody said, you know, gee, maybe not. Let's go to the community McDonald's. So the office, the mayor's office didn't respond. The former cemetery, just to finish up, is now a children's play area, um, and it is a very holy town with a very rich history. Again, anybody wants to know where I source this stuff, I'll send you the original article. We're not going to take the time now for me to tell you about the history of the town, but I will tell you that where is our humanity? This show is very personal. I tell you a lot of stuff that goes on in my life, not so intimate because there's really not that much fun going on, but you know, I tell you what the feelings are. And years ago, um, I remember that, um, you know, I I just want to get back to the beginning about the being kind, being careful, the thinking what we're doing. You know, all it would have taken was one person, one non-Jewish person in the town to stand up and say, whoa, whoa, maybe not. Maybe this is where we shouldn't be doing it. There's a history here. Gee, we don't even know the history. But this could be offensive. There was nowhere else to go. And I was thinking back to my snapping just through the tips of my fingers. It felt so innocent, so easy to hurt someone's day. And I can remember, have we ever sat around talking about the travails in our marriages, women sitting, having cups of tea or a glass of wine and laughing, laughing and saying, oh, he's so impossible. Oh, he doesn't put away his underwear. Oh, he doesn't help me clear the table. And not notice that there's a woman at the table who is recently widowed or never married. The time 
when we sit and say, my son is making me crazy. He doesn't do his homework assignments. He doesn't help me do anything. And we fail to notice there's someone at the table, someone in the room, on the park bench, who has a child with special needs that couldn't, if he wanted to, help clear the table, do his homework. We talk about, I didn't like this manicurist. She really, the manicure only lasted seven days, nine days, seven minutes. And there's somebody nearby who is budgeting every penny and could never, ever consider paying for her own manicure. We have all these opportunities to practice holiness. And all it would have taken was someone to stand up and say, this is wrong. Okay, we'll talk another day. This is not timely about the Israeli soldier who was monitoring Iranian activity for 15 years and helping Israel with intel just by his little side project. Uh, Let's see. Good news, bad news. All right. So also, I think it was last Sunday night, there was a demonstration in Tel Aviv. I wish I weren't telling this story, but you know what? We got to talk about it just a little bit. There was a demonstration in Tel Aviv. There's a yeshiva in Tel Aviv, a yeshiva, a school of Jewish higher learning called the Malay Eliyahu Yeshiva. It's in Tel Aviv, very popular yeshiva, fabulous, famous rabbi, and secular Israelis protested outside of it, calling it a messianic Tel Aviv yeshiva, must get out of here. Uh, One example of many messianic outposts, these are quotes, if anybody's turning in, okay, located in the heart of our liberal neighborhood. And I was thinking about it. I had a client the other day who uh, is quite liberal. She's she's Torah observant and very liberal in her outlook. And we were talking about the protests and the reform, uh, the the, the subject to reform, uh, the, the judiciary in Israel. And we come from very different sides. She's been to every protest. I've been to none of the protests. And we listened to each other. And we didn't end up agreeing, but we both came out richer because we listened to each other. And she could very well say, you know, that Andrea and her people are are reactionary nuts. They're, they're, They're buried in the Stone Age. And I could have said, what a leftist burying our society. But we listened. And maybe a yeshiva in the middle of your neighborhood is not such a terrible thing. And there's a wonderful, we only have 30 seconds left, but I read a lovely article by a religious Tel Avivite, Tel Avivian, uh, who has a response. When we come back, I'm going to talk a little bit about just a different way that they possibly can look at one another. Because I'm going to tell you something. This is the only country we have. So we better get into the art. We better develop the art of listening to one another. Andrea Simintov, see you on the other side. Okay, we're back. We are back. Andrea Simintov, pull up a chair, Israel News Talk Radio dot 
com. You know, it's crazy. I mean, the show is an hour. And sometimes when I prep this show, I think like, I have nothing to share. And then I look at all these notes and I say, I can't get to all this stuff. But again, I'm thinking about it. We're in a Jewish country. We're in a Jewish country. And when we don't know what we, who we are, what we are, I've mentioned this before. There are those who say, you know, we have a lot of non-Jews listening in. Blessed, holy, interested, hands across the ocean, non-Jewish friends listening in. And I think I say to my Jewish friends listening in who listen to shows like this and listen to other shows on other wonderful holy platforms, it's a wonderful thing to know who you are, to know what you know, but more importantly, to humble yourself and say, there's so much I don't know, and I have an obligation to know. And I think about that. I, I often talk about the story about when I was in college. First year of college, I had never been, you know, I always say in New York, anybody listening in from New York, you're Jewish. Even if you're Latino, you're Jewish. If you are Irish, you're Jewish. If you are Italian, you're definitely Jewish. So it's just, I mean, everybody speaks Yiddish, a little bit of here, a little there. It's a very Jewish city. And for the first time at the age of 17 and a half, I went away. And I was in Olam HaGoyim. I was in the land of the people. And um, I was identifiably Jewish, albeit not at all observant. And somebody came to me, a boy. I remember his name is Hugh. I never met a Jewish Hugh in my life, and this was no exception. And Hugh came to me and said, by the way, Andrea, someone asked me something. And I said, I'll ask Andrea, what do Jews believe about? And then I don't remember the rest of the sentence because it was unimportant. What was important is he said to me, what do Jews believe about? And I looked at him blankly and I had no idea. And I know that there are many Jews or many Muslims or many Catholics, Presbyterians, Hindus, Buddhists, who might say, oh, nobody really does that anymore, or that's the older generation. And somehow, God in heaven, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed be he, did not let me give that foolish, vapid answer. And instead I said, I'll get back to you. I never did get back to Hugh, unless he's a, a listener to this program. But from that moment on, I pursued learning what Jews believe about, and you fill in the blank. And I think about that when I think about a yeshiva on a street in Tel Aviv that I promise you was not built with chutzpah, with nerve, with arrogance, with in your face. It was built with the love of living among one another, all being part of the same holy tapestry that began at the foot of Sinai and suddenly under siege, under attack by those who could probably merit an hour or two being inside the holy walls. We'll talk more about that later. Send you the articles. Fabulous article by Stuart. I think his name is, oh, Shmuel. Shmuel Rosner, Rabbi Shmuel Rosner. Very articulate. 
I think he's an ordained rabbi, was a writer for so many Jewish publications and indeed the Israeli government. All right, let's get on. Let's do some Torah because fabulous Parsha. Okay, the Parsha is this week, Shalach. And I got notes all over the place, but I guess we're all familiar with my choppy style. Okay, if you want to listen to smooth Torah, write me a note. I'll tell you who to listen to. Okay, not so much me. Anyway, this is the Parsha, uh, the Parsha of Miraglim, the spies. We all know the spies. I'm going to take off my glasses. All right. So the Parsha of the spies and the, the subsequent punishment for the Jewish people is indeed, this is one of the most tragic events in human history. And there are repercussions for everyone listening in. The repercussions of this event, this occurrence, continues to bring further tragedies upon our people. The rabbis teach us that when the punishments of the fathers are brought upon their sons, it's only when the sons have continued in the same behavior that originally brought about the results. That's when the punishment comes down. What was I ask you, let's just think, what was the sin of the Dor Harmidbar, the generation of the desert? And how is that punishment uh, supposed to bring about a remedy? Or what we say in Hebrew, a tikkun. So many of you have heard tikkun olam, the repair of the world. Well, a tikkun is a remedy. So after uh, hearing the report of the spies, the Torah tells us, and I just want to, uh, I just have to jump in here. Very often I will say, uh, this rabbi said in the words, in the book of, because it is Jewish tradition to give credit where credit is due. And I promise you, I'm not making up any of this stuff that I share. It's always sourced. And I like to tell you where it comes from and even in whose name certain things are said. So um, so after the, the, um, the Torah tells us that all of the congregation lifted up their voice and cried and all the people wept that night. And I'm telling you, oy vavoy, oy vavoy, the people that Moshe had to take out of Egypt. In the Gemara, it says, quote, this was Tisha B'Av. Hashem says to them, you have cried a crying for nothing, and I shall set for you a time of crying throughout the generations. It sounds a lot like a parent who has lost all patience with their child's fetching. You know, nan, 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 and yells, I'm sick of hearing you cry. If you don't be quiet, I'll give you something to cry about. Do they do that in this generation? Definitely my mother's generation. But we know God doesn't, you know, God doesn't have the same human failings and impatience that we do. Let's not make a mistake and put these kind of human attributes on Hashem. So there has to be a different explanation. The problem was the crying and somehow the tikkun, the remedy is the crying. The crying out of B'nai Israel, the children of Israel, was a crying out of depression, a depression brought about by their perception of the spies' reports. Tisha B'Av, the ninth of the month of Av, which will be coming up soon, and God willing, we'll be doing a lot of pre-Tisha B'Av thinking together. It's a day 
that's meant to teach us how to achieve the opposite of depression, which is what? Simcha, joy. The sages say that Moshiach, the Messiah, will be born on Tisha B'Av. Now, what, what does this even mean? We understand this to mean that he will not necessarily be born on Tisha B'Av. Don't watch the hospital registries. But that the experience of the ninth of Av will bring about the coming of the Moshiach, which is the ultimate time of joy, the Zman Simcha. Tisha B'Av. It destroys illusions. No one could believe that such suffering and destruction could come upon Jerusalem. It made no sense that God's people, God's land, God's temple could be so decimated. In more recent times, we don't have to look far back. The Holocaust, the Shoah, how could this have happened to God's nation? Are we so terrible? Are we any worse than the other nations of the world? I think in the West, disillusionment, it's like a, it's like a dirty word. <clears throat> we want to live a life full of illusions. The illusion of safety. The importance of wealth. Immortality among others. What is it? I read about a guy who is taking medication, that he's 40, but he has the body of an 18-year-old. Silliness. The sin of B'nai Yisrael is the story of the spies. It was crying over illusions. In Judaism, the end the end of a uh, crying for nothing is growing up and facing reality. According to the sages, the world avelut, mourning, mourning, not, not boker, but mourning, like um, sitting shiva, comes from aval, meaning truth. The Megillah of Kohelet, the book of Kohelet says... Um, translate here, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. Say what? And my husband would laugh and say, there's nothing more Jewish than that. But anyway, going to a house of mourning, seeing tragedy, living through a Tisha B'Av, all makes one more aware and allows us to focus on that which is truly, truly important. It's a, there's a universality of mourning. And what is it? What do we say? The two things that can't be changed are taxes and death. All life ends in death. Nobody gets out alive. The idea of death destroys illusions. Tisha B'Av is the ultimate disillusion. One can't trust again after a a korban, fires destroying a people, a city, a nation, a holocaust, or the death of a loved one, because what was once viewed as secure and security is not. We're taught 
by tragedy to focus our lives on what is truly important and not the trappings. How many times have we seen at a wedding what should be the greatest time of simcha, joy, ruined because the wedding party worried about the caterer, the makeup artist, the florist, the photographer. These flowers should have been on that table and not that table. I broke my heel. Instead, we have to remember the coming together of a Jewish boy and a Jewish girl to form a bayit, a bayit ne'eman b'Yisrael, a Jewish family. In the Haftorah, you know what, one second. Let me just wait. Let's get back to the spies one second, okay? Because I love this. There's a lot of stuff. What am I, I going to talk about on Tisha B'Av? You know, the crying of B'nai Yisrael in the, this week's Torah portion shows that they couldn't properly understand the reality of the fragility of life. The reports of the spies, they were meaningless. We didn't even need the report. Because the only pertinent information was our relationship to God. The only thing that mattered was, quote, if the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land. You know, in the Hasidic books, okay, I can't tell you which books, all right, but this is brought down by um, Nachshoni. There's a different approach to the sin, the sin of the Miraglim set forth. And by the way, I also learned this week, very interesting. We use the word, you know, the word sin uh, for Jews, it's actually a not, not a Jewish concept. Sin is just easier for us to understand the way we say tzedakah is charity. Tzedakah is not charity or charity is not tzedakah. And sin is not the same as Chet. Chet is the word we use, uh, but I will use sit on this program because we speak English, but I just wanted to toss in as an aside. Chet really means that something's missing. We don't sin as much as we miss an opportunity. Miss an opportunity to do good, to raise ourselves up. But anyway, I digress. Okay. <clears throat> the sin of the spies is set forth, but here's a different approach. The spies were afraid of entering Eretz Israel because for they feared, and this is just to me a lovely, lovely take, they feared that it would bring an end to that highly spiritual existence of the desert when the people lived miraculously on manna, you know, manna from heaven to eat, the be'er, the wells, and the clouds of glory which protected them from the beating sun and the elements. According to Nachshoni, quote, in the desert, Bnei Yisrael became accustomed to bread falling from the heavens and considered it, the end quote, and considered it a descent from their spiritual levels to have dealt with the real world, putting Torah in control of their mundane workday lives. So what has really happened here? The spies fail to appreciate that the task of man, the toil of man, is precisely to apply Torah to 
all worldly matters. If God wanted the children of Israel to live always on that level of complete um, spirituality, well, we wouldn't be any different than angels of whom I have to, I promise you, God has sufficient numbers of angels. And the Tzfat Emet emphasizes this thought, another commentator, beautifully, by pointing out that immediately, immediately after the story of the spies, what happens in Torah, our blueprint, a non-history book? The Torah brings down the three commandments, the three mitzvot, namely the wine libation, okay, the wine that was offered on the altar, challah, okay, challah bread, that's the tithing offered from the dough, and tzitzit, ritual fringes. These mitzvahs, these commandments are a direct answer to the mistaken philosophy of the spies. When the children of Israel would arrive in the land of Israel, they would have to live a normal human existence without the manna, without the water from the wells, without the clouds of glory and protection. But in our place, we'll have an opportunity to impart sanctity to ordinary liquids, to our bread, and to our garments in order to fulfill the essential goal of Torah, which is what? Making that which is profane, ultimately holy. Causing the Torah to rule over our mundane lives is not a lowering of ourselves or of the Torah, but indeed an aliyah, an uplifting for us and the Torah. Okay, so now we're going to, let me just look at the clock. Oh my, there's so much to share. All right, all right, all right. We're winding it down, boys and girls, because I have to pack. Okay, so um, we're taught by a, um, I, I just love the story of the spies because it's such a, they were supposed to be, it was supposed to be another elevation in our history. And once again, our raw, vulnerable accessible and all so human humanity is elicited through the holy words of the Torah. So we're taught, uh, there's a Mishnah in, um, there's a Mishnah that says that the Jewish people as represented by the generation in the desert. Okay, you want to hear chutzpah? You want to hear Jewish chutzpah? We tested Hashem 10 times. So the idea of testing God is is kind of difficult to understand, um, particularly so when we can see that this generation didn't learn from its experience because every single test turn, you know, failed to achieve anything other than harming that generation and dooming it to indeed the destruction over that 40 years, meaning that with teeny exception, none were to enter the land of Israel. You know, by sending the spies to discover, you know, what, what do we do on this show? What do we try to do together? What am I trying to do for myself? And just am so delighted that anybody wants to share this journey. Um, I want to understand more, understand more deeply, go beyond the superficial. It's like someone who says, yeah, I read the Torah, good book. You know, <laughs> where's a war and peace? It's to really get beneath the words 
And here we are together understanding that the sending of the spies to discover and report back on listen. What were they asked to discover, to, to report back on? The condition of the promised country, the population. That's a prime example of this type of test. As Rashi points out, Hashem told Moshe, I am not ordering you to send spies to return on the to report on the land of Israel. I have told you that this land is your destiny and it's a land of spiritual and physical greatness and prosperity. However, if you wish, you have the option. You have the option of sending spies. So there's an implicit choice here given from heaven that the option will be of great consequence if it's exercised. It's also a repetition of a test that the Torah has recorded for us too many times when the people ask themselves, is this God really within our community or not? I mean, after all, after all the miracles that this generation has experienced that we can only read about, imagine, feel sometimes the avak, the dust of the miracle of the desert, the miracle of the exodus from Egypt, the miracle of our sustenance. And we're still saying, is God with me or is God absent? That he still could ask these questions. It has to be obvious that the people's relationship with Hashem was truly dysfunctional. That they didn't share his, his vision of their particular future. So the commentators have advanced a lot of ideas over the ages as to what motivated the leaders of Israel to create constantly these crises of emunah, of faith within their people. But of course, the basic problem repeatedly we see is the fact that people's trust in God, no matter how many miracles and victories they experienced, was not just weak and fragile, it was immediate. Front and center, they were not constantly aware of the injunction to save nishma. We will see, you know, um, we will hear and we will listen. Faith. According to Rabbi Wine, faith is one of the strongest emotions. One of the strongest emotions that a person can have. I heard somebody say recently, um, I was angry at God, but then I wasn't angry at God. And I thought to myself, I couldn't the idea of being abandoned by God, where, where were we left with? To be angry at God? It's so damn human. Such a chutzpah. To have so little self-reflection that we think always outward. What has been done to me? And again, faith is one of the strongest emotions that a person can have. However, it's something that very, very difficult to acquire, to find the faith, to discover it, to push away the wheat from the chaff. Oh, so easy to abandon, so easy to lose. You know, and when faith wanes, when faith goes away, process of testing God starts again because it's the nature that nature of the human being to keep testing 
keep checking it out. It was never easy to see the true purpose of the land of Israel for Jewish life. So many of us here today take it for granted. Some days thinking we're living in, we're living in Sweden or in Canada. Jews are very successful outside of the land of Israel. Documented. How many Nobel Prizes do we, re- do we receive outside as compared to our number in the population of the world? And yet, the centrality of the land of Israel to Judaism has always been the prime belief and national messages of the Torah regarding the survival and destiny of Jewish people should remind us don't fall into the trap of testing God regarding you know regarding the land of Israel Shabbat Shalom and keep the faith